this is not a good book for those just beginning their journey into magic. There are some prerequisite skills I recommend developing before working with this material. Among them, meditation, shielding, energy manipulation, and the ability to journey in trance. This is not just a book of spells and workings to be followed religiously. This is a system with experimentation and diversity built in. The more that people get out there and experiment, the more deeply our practices will root and grow. The time has come, so let us grow wildly. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! Tonight, we are taking a look at Elves, Witches, and Gods, Spinning Old Heathen Magic in the Modern Day, by Cat Heath. As you heard in the introduction, Cat herself states that this is not a beginner's book. In fact, I and one of my friends, hi Dave, read this book and are now in the process of rereading it. Not gonna lie, it's a lot. But... That's a good thing, because, to my knowledge, there has not really been a good, thorough adaptation of heathen magical systems that wasn't just Wicca dressed up with a Thor's hammer and a horned helmet. Cat Heath is the founder of the Cult of the Spinning Goddess and co-founder of the Open Halls Project. She is also a member of the Great Valley Kindred and the Troth. This is her second publication, the first being a self-published book entitled Essays from the Crossroads 2016 Collection, written under the name Seo Hellrune. Author Morgan Daimler said about this collection, This is all the awesome. I want to buy this thing. Basically, take my money. That was enough review for me to insta-buy a copy for myself. I may do a mini-episode of this for my patrons in the future, so keep an eye out for that one. This episode, though, is about Kat's second book, so let's get started. To begin, the book is divided into two sections, Cosmology and the Practice of Heathen Magic. The first section, Cosmology, is vitally important and something that is often overlooked or shortchanged in many publications of culture-specific magical systems. To fully grasp how a culture performed magic, you need to understand how they viewed the world around them. Otherwise, you are just trying to superimpose an alien practice onto an unrelated belief structure. This will either cause the magic to fail, or it could create unintended consequences as a result. The very first thing we need to know is, what exactly do we mean when we say heathen magic? There are three general groups or magic systems that are recorded historically. Seder, Galder, and Going Under the Cloak. Each of these are found in various sagas, and each has their own unique attributes, which I will go into later. But what about the runes, you may ask? While runes are inherently magical, at least some are according to Havamal, they seem to be a tool used in various magics 
rather than a singular type of magic in itself. Next are the deities associated with heathen magic, alluded to by the title of this chapter, the spindle and the spear. These are the tools of Freya and Odin, both of whom have their own unique form of magic. There is also a third deity who is tangentially associated with magical entities rather than with magic itself, and that's Freyr. Largely associated with fertility, Freyr, also known as Ing in other Germanic practices, is also the lord of Alfheim, or Land of the Elves. What makes him key to magic is his ties to the afterlife. Scandinavian elves seem to have a close association to land spirits and the ghosts that inhabit burial mounds. So having a working relationship with Freyr is handy for shamanic work and for necromancy. Finally is a summary of the heathen origin story. Where the world came from, how the gods were born, how they will die, how the nine realms are organized, etc. It is in this section that Kat's research really shines. She explains how mythology can be examined to extrapolate how Scandinavian cultures viewed the primal, creative forces of nature and the cosmos. In many stories, someone is killed or something is sacrificed to enact the greatest changes. For example, the world was created by Odin and his brothers from the slain of Ymir. This is just an example, though. You don't have to go do a blood sacrifice every time you attempt heathen magic. The final part of the first section encompasses more intangible aspects of magic, such as the concept of health, luck, fate, fortune, and spirit helpers. Once all of those foundational parts have been explained, we can get into the specific works. Let's start with Seder. What exactly is it? Well, the short answer is that we really aren't sure. There aren't any written historical accounts that delineate this is Seder and this is not Seder. Even in the accounts that we do have, it seems to refer to a broad variety of uses. In general, it seems to involve manipulation, prophecy, healing, and the locating of hidden things, both tangible and intangible. One thing is certain, though. Culturally, Seder work was largely regulated to women's work. No one is really sure why, but it is generally considered shameful for men to practice this form of magic. Despite this, Odin himself was well known for practicing Seder. Then again, Odin was well known for going to great lengths for knowledge, so emasculating himself for magical abilities seems rather on-brand for him. What's more, Odin seems to have learned the art of Seder from his wife, the spinning goddess Freya. This lends a bit more weight to the idea that Seder has some association with spinning, binding, tying, or ensnaring. These attributes help direct us a bit in determining how Seder is performed. Historically, there are a few accounts directly involving spinning with this magical art and a couple others that imply its use. There are even depictions of witches riding a flying distaff, a pole used to hold loose fibers in the spinning process, rather than atop a flying broom. There is clearly an association between spinning and magic. 
unfortunately, the context of this is largely lost to history. The author is in a unique position in that she was raised in an area where there was a lot of shepherding, so she was able to learn spinning in her youth. This becomes abundantly clear later on in the book when she describes the practical and practiced aspects of both spinning and of Seder. The next form of magic is Galder. Galder is vocalized magic. This could vary from poetic recitation to chanting to musical song. There are two main forms that this type of magic can take. The first is a narrative charm in which the magic is done through storytelling. This is often done by mythologizing the subject of the charm as well as the situation surrounding it. For example, to overcome an illness, the disease may take the form of a monstrous beast for the hero to overcome through hardship and trials. In the telling of the story, the disease would lose strength as the hero, aka the patient, would gain the upper hand. These were not stories created on the spot to cure a specific individual in a specific situation, but instead a recollection of a mythological tradition. Personally, I see this as a possible mnemonic device used by the Galder worker in order to recall specific details. This information may be coded in the story through personification or allegory, while a trained individual would be able to suss out the details for magical workings. Otherwise, anyone who knew the story would be able to recreate the effects, right? The other type of Galder is known as Galdrolag, which is a specific poetic construction used for these charms. There is both a song version of this as well as a written poetic version. The text includes, as an example, the Old High German Second Mersberg charm, which reads as follows. Fall and Woden rode to the wood. Then Baldur's horse sprained its leg. Then Synthgunt sang over it, and Suna her sister. Then Freya sang over it, and Vola her sister. Then Woden sang over it, as he well knew how. Over this bone sprain, this bone sprain, this limb sprain. Bone to bone, blood to blood, limb to limb, such as they belong together. As I read this, something struck me. The final part seemed very familiar, and it finally occurred to me why. This is almost identical to charms used in The Long Lost Friend, a book of magic used by the Amish. The charms in the book had supplanted the Norse gods with those of the Christian faith, but the words bone to bone, blood to blood, limb to limb, are still used in some. As the Merseburg charm is German in origin, so too are the Amish. Catherine goes on to further explain that this charm is also thought to be much, much older than its Germanic origin. That same part that made me recall conjure practices has ties to Hittites and possibly even Vedic texts. For a frame of reference, Heath points out that the Hittites ceased to be a unique cultural group 
by 1200 BC. You may be wondering what the actual rules for the poetic meter of Galdralag are. Again, we're not exactly sure, but we have quite a few examples. The author presents us with the construction that she uses for her own Galdr charms. To start, you will need seven or eight lines of recitation. In those lines, there is a lot of alliteration, which is when you begin words with the same letter or sound. The first two lines of your charm must share an alliteration, one in each line. In line three, at least two words must be alliterative within that line. Then, in lines four and five, you make a pair of alliterations between them, as you did in lines one and two. Line six looks at the alliterative words from line three and uses more words with the same alliteration. The last line takes line six and changes it in some way, evoking the change that you hope to achieve with the charm. An example from the author reads, With stitches green I grow my wings To wander wide among the worlds A veil of prayers Victory's cloak. Well I fly upon these wings. Well I fly throughout the world. Well I fly, then safe return. As you can probably tell, Galdor is a magic system that requires a person to have a unique talent for poetry. Moving on, we come to a magical practice simply known as going under the cloak. This involves a cloak, obviously and being seated beneath it. At least that's the basis of it. The process is vague in historic accounts, though it seems that there are many variations of this practice throughout other European cultures, specifically the Irish and the Sami. Interestingly enough, both cultures had contact with the Norse during the Viking Age. Compared to other accounts and stories, it seems as if this practice allowed the practitioner to send his spirit into the world to observe situations from afar. A practice once investigated by the U.S. government with the common name of remote viewing in the 60s and 70s. Of course, they used copious amounts of drugs during these tests. As for historical heathens, it's difficult to say if there were any mind-altering substances involved. There is another application of this spell work, and that is a practice we know today as necromancy. This isn't Hollywood necromancy, where a sorcerer raises an army of zombies, though. This is the summoning of spirits of the land, spirits of the deceased, and of other non-human entities. It's almost like a type of channeling that you would see done at seances. It gives the magician an opportunity to commune with these entities and seek their advice. In theory, the use of the cloak creates an artificial liminal space, similar to one you would find in the deep recesses of a cave system. These locations are known worldwide as places where spirits dwell, so creating one yourself, especially one that you can end quickly by throwing back the cloak, would be a useful skill. The most well-known account of going under the cloak comes to us from the Icelandic sagas, in the Book of the Icelanders, we hear the tale of the Christianization of Iceland. 
In brief, the king of Norway was placing increasing pressures on the island nation to convert. He had several hostages at his disposal, as well as an increasingly more restrictive trade embargo that he levied. Beyond foreign influence, half of Iceland was already converted, and they had declared themselves outside the law, meaning that they did not acknowledge heathen laws, nor would they adhere to them. Outlawry was a punishment used frequently in Iceland, but it usually applied to a small number of individuals for a set period of time. For this to happen to half the nation, it was a logistical nightmare that could potentially tear the country apart. During the Althing, the meeting of all leaders in Iceland, the law speaker Thorgir Thorkelsen was tasked with making the final official decision. He declared that he would go under the cloak, where no one was to disturb him nor speak his name. When he emerged, he declared that publicly Iceland would be Christian, but privately its citizens could worship as they saw fit. While this still allowed for the worship of the heathen gods, it paved the way for Christianity to soon take over. As a side note unrelated to the book, the worship of the heathen gods is the fastest-growing religion in Iceland at this time. It attracts an interesting mixture of polytheists and atheists. It shares an interesting parallel to the Satanic Temple, which is largely an atheistic organization that promotes egalitarianism and freedom of religion for those of all faiths, rather than the literal worship of a Christian devil. Now that we've looked at the types of magic in heathen practices, we should examine its unique tools. Some of these will be familiar to most magical practices, so I will highlight aspects in which they are used in different ways. The first is the censer. This one is pretty simple. It's a heat-resistant container that will be used to burn things in. In modern witchcraft, this is usually the function of the cauldron. Kat offers a few alternatives, but the advice that she and I both advocate is to add a layer of sand in any vessel that is not heat-resistant. In fact, I still use sand in containers that are heat-resistant, simply because it prevents the charcoal disc from applying too much direct heat to a single area. If you choose to have a dedicated sensor, Heath includes a dedication ritual that uses salt water and mugwort. Honestly, this is just a good way to periodically clean your sensor, so why not ritualize it, right? The next item is the spindle. If you aren't doing this specific type of seder, this obviously isn't necessary. If you are wanting to try this, it will interest you to know that at least one spindle whirl, the disc-shaped weight on a spindle, has been found in archaeological sites that bears decoration indicating that it was used specifically for magical purposes, rather than utilitarian spinning. Because this is a key component to the magic presented in this book, Kat doesn't just include how to dedicate one. She teaches you what to consider if you want to construct one of your own. While there is not heathen correspondences to specific wood types, there is an included table with information based on other cultural and historical correspondences. One nice thing about the dedication rituals in this book is that a lot of the pieces will repeat, 
So once you learn the words to create blessed water or to consecrate mugwort, you can use that in the same way in every single ritual. If you don't want to memorize them and instead want to follow the steps directly from the book, that's okay too, because they are written out in their entirety every time they are used in a ritual. There's no page flipping to cross-reference information. Back to the tools. Next up is the cauldron. Yep, they're used exactly in the same way you would expect. They aren't mentioned specifically in heathen sources, but it's a tool that they are known to have had around the home, so it was probably used to some degree. There is a consecration charm custom-made for the cauldron included in this section of the book as well. Another item that isn't specifically a part of heathen magic is the knife. Many cultures seem to have had ritualized knives or daggers, but in historical heathen society, it seems to have been so commonplace that it is just considered a mundane tool. That said, we are not ancient heathens, so we can ritualize our stabby toys. The included dedication ceremony is entirely modern with a heathen flair. I wouldn't do this ritual on a knife that you plan to use for any actual cutting, since it involves heating and quenching the blade multiple times. Depending on the temperature of the metal during the quench, this could either make the blade extremely brittle or super soft. Either way, don't be surprised if it won't hold an edge. There is another step to the ritual that I've seen in other ceremonies, often for bathames, and that is to bury the knife blade downward into the earth for three days. Having made knives and knife handles before, this part makes me twitch more than just a little bit. If you live in an arid location, this may be okay, but in a majority of the world, this can and likely will rust the blade. One of the last tools is the cord. It seems simple enough, and is probably something that most people would overlook, but it makes sense that a fiber artist would feature its use. This isn't as simple as a piece of string, though. This is a braided, or woven, dedicated cord used for bindings, snares, or even as a barrier when casting a circle. Which, I want to point out, this is pretty handy when you have to do stuff indoors. Cat recommends using three different colors when braiding this cord. Red, black, and white. These are the most commonly mentioned colors for cordage recorded in folk magic practices around the world. While you could get away with a cord braided from only three strands of yarn, it is suggested that you use at least nine strands to give it a bit more heft. There is a full rite that is designed to be performed while you are constructing this cord with specific passages for each color. The last tool listed is really a series of tools that all serve a similar purpose, and those are the distaff, staff, or stang, depending on your preference. Ideally, they are each fancy, long sticks. I'm not bad-mouthing them, I have a staff of my own, but at its core, that's exactly what it is. 
Historically, there were also iron distaffs found in relation to the graves of a suspected vulva, or a female magical practitioner of heathen Scandinavia. They are considered to be for ritual use, since an iron distaff would be way too heavy to be used for spinning at any length of time. Wooden staffs, found in archaeological context, are also likely used for ritual purposes, since they are often crooked in a way that would make them non-functional as a distaff, or, in one instance, the example had a hollow core, making it way too weak to be used as a distaff. There are many theories as to the function of these staffs, ranging from symbols of authority to spirit-inhabited magical objects, but honestly, we're not certain of their function. There is a distinct lack of evidence that mentions them specifically, so much of what we know is guesswork. That said, they are certainly handy tools, and they are featured here along with suggested ways to obtain your own. There is a lot more in this book, but I'll leave that for you to discover on your own. To give you a brief idea, though, there are further sections on personal experiences, suggested rituals, and even a section of safety and troubleshooting. The whole book is well-written and researched, with footnotes on pretty much every page. Even when the author makes a claim about an artifact or about a prevailing view of a certain practice, there is almost guaranteed to be an accompanying footnote that cites an outside source. If there is one failing of this book, it is the lack of an index. Then again, the contents page is quite detailed, and the way the book is formatted, it should be pretty easy to find what information it is you seek. For example, it was rather easy to reference sections of this book when writing this episode. So if you want to get an idea of how to apply historical heathenry to modern practices, grab a copy of Elves, Witches, and Gods by Cat Heath. As always, I will put a link in the show notes. Before I get into the end credits, it has come to my attention that some listeners don't necessarily know what Patreon is and how it supports this show. Patreon is an online platform for artists and creators that allows their fans to donate and pledge money to them, generally on a monthly basis. In exchange for this donation, there are rewards offered by the artist. While I may joke that these donations help provide me with coffee, in reality, they help pay for reading materials and server costs for hosting the show. There are currently four levels of donations available on my page. They are $1 a month, $3 a month, $8 a month, and $20 a month. Each level has its own perks, but even at $1 a month, you get access to many episodes called the Esoteric Footnotes. They are a newer reward that I've added to my page, and they are recordings of my thoughts and views on various esoteric and magical topics. Starting at the $8 level, you will get mentioned by name on episodes. If you're extra weird, like Samantha Shaver, you will get a shout-out on every single show. So if you enjoyed this content and want to help me continue, every little bit helps. The Esoteric Book Club can now be found on every single podcasting platform. Yes, really. 
I just got confirmation from Pandora a few weeks ago. You can also find it on Instagram and Facebook, though I'm probably going to shut down the Instagram page soon since I have very little interaction on there. As I stated earlier, if you would like to help support the show and my coffee addiction, you can find me on Patreon. Links to all of these platforms will be in the show notes. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. They can be found on bandcamp.com and at wearehellojune.com. They just released a new single on Spotify, so check that out as well. That's all I have for tonight. So, until next time, remember, stay weird. <laughs>